beginning with verse 19. For in him, for, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Romans 1, 21 through the end of the chapter. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creator, the creature, rather than the creator, who is blessed forevermore. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Let's take a moment to be seated, reflect together on God's word. it'll be helpful for you to have your Bibles open as we try to answer these four questions from the text of Colossians chapter one. Who is Jesus? Who am I? What did Jesus do? What do I need to do? These sort of form a platform or foundation from which Christianity gets built. So let's look at those questions in turn. First, who is Jesus? We've been looking at this uh, these five verses, chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, as you might remember, it's a hymn. Paul got so excited about who Jesus was, he couldn't just say it, he had to sing it. And so there was some kind of common hymn in those days, and he just said, hey, this is, this is a great theological understanding of who Jesus is. I'm going to just stick it right here in my letter and sing it to the people to understand who Jesus is. And, and the, the hymn is like a, a rare diamond that you might hold up in the light. And as you turn it, 
each little facet shows something beautiful. And I counted this week 12 different ways Paul describes Jesus in just these few verses. Here's a few of them. He is the image of the invisible God. All three things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. He holds all things together. He's the head of the church. He's preeminent. And then here in verse 19, our text for this morning, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The founder of Young Life, a guy named Jim Rayburn, once said, Jesus is not just what Young Life is all about. Jesus is all that Young Life is about. And I think the Apostle Paul would have said, Jesus is not just what life is all about. Jesus is all that life is all about. In, in other words, when you connected to Jesus, you're completely filled. Life is all about him. If you're connected to him, you have life. Whoever has, has me has life. Jesus isn't just the center of Christianity. He's the center of all reality. Everything revolves around him, not around what's created, not, not around you, not around me. And Paul purposely uses this word fullness in a very strategic way. I think it's a way for him to kind of stick it in the eye of people in the church. Because some people in the church were coming in and they were saying, well, okay, Jesus may be what you're saying he is, but he's not quite supreme or he's not quite sufficient. And, and whatever the false gospel, the, the counterfeit gospel, the shadow gospel that was trying to wedge its way into the door somehow was saying, well, you need a, you need to, to really be connected to God, to really be full, you need this thing. And then they would just insert this thing. You need this special vision or experience. You need these special rules and regulations. You need to understand the God from this certain philosophy. Whatever it is, you were, you had Jesus, but you just weren't full. And if you had my little program, my little way, my little uh, experience, then you'd be full. And so when Paul says, in him, the fullness of God dwells, he's sticking into the eye to everybody who comes in with a, a false gospel. He's trying to make sure this, this brand new church in Colossae, it's just getting off the ground, doesn't hear these other voices and get distracted and move in some other different direction, seeking some fullness in addition to Christ. It's not the, the Jesus plus gospel. Paul's just saying, Jesus, he's the gospel. When you have him, you are full because everything that you need is found in him. So in this hymn, we've talked about it now for two plus weeks. Paul answers the question very clear. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sufficient. So who is Jesus? He's God with skin on. He's completely supreme over all things. He's completely sufficient for all things. Second question, who am I? Verse 21. You see this verbal cue, and you. So we've come out of this hymn, and now verse 21, it represents this transition. And you. We've had all eyes on Jesus. Now we're going to put all eyes on you, all eyes on humanity, all eyes on, on me. It's a, it's a pivot point. The camera shifts. And in this verse, Paul provides a, a sort of a three-point diagnosis of humanity. 
The diagnosis is critical. Every doctor, every patient knows that you have to have a correct diagnosis. Not, nothing, you know this, nothing more frustrating than going to the doctor and they say, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong. Or a misdiagnosis. Hey, we're going to treat you for this. And you come back and you find out, well, you don't really have that. You have this. And you've been taking medicine or doing something that didn't really help. So Paul wants to make sure we have a very crystal clear diagnosis of the problem. Because if you don't have a clear diagnosis, first you can think you're not sick. Hey, I'm normal. You're not normal. I'm not normal. Some of you knew that already. I just wanted to give you that moment to laugh. I'm not normal. Or you could think you're sick or know that you're sick, but you but you don't really have the right diagnosis. So you chase sort of like snake oil remedies for things that really aren't going to solve the problem. And so I might just issue a warning. It's perhaps it's good that you're sitting down. The diagnosis isn't favorable. It's not a good diagnosis when. God looks at us and says, okay, we've been looking at Jesus. Now let's just shift the camera and drill down on you. The three-point diagnosis, you can see it. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We're alienated. We, we are estranged from God. We don't speak the same language. We, we're not in the same culture. Without Jesus, you and I don't fit with God. It's an enormous problem because we're separated from the one who holds all things together. There couldn't be a deeper alienation. And I don't know exactly what Paul had in mind when he used this word alienated. But my guess is he was thinking of the two big moments in the Old Testament. Here, Paul is a Jewish scholar uh, extraordinaire, and I'm betting he's saying it's like when Adam and Eve got cast out of the garden. They were together with God, but then sin came in and they became aliens. They're not in the right culture. They no longer speak the right language. They're not connected with God anymore. And then as if it was like a replay, let's try this whole experiment over again. I'm not going to have just two people in a particular land. I'm going to have a whole group of people, the Hebrew people. They're going to be in my promised land like it was the garden again. And I'm going to try again. And this time I'm going to give them these specific things to follow. And if they follow me, we'll be together. We'll have the same culture. We'll have the same language. And, and they failed. And they became aliens. They became Exiles. They were in a foreign culture, a foreign language. And I think Paul is using this same sort of imagery to say we're, we're aliens. If we're not connected to Christ, we're aliens to God. It might explain why when Jesus comes to the earth, so much of what he says or asks of us is so counterintuitive. You want to have life? Oh, I do. You got to give up your life. Oh, okay. Let me see that hand wants to give up their life. Okay, nobody. You want to be the greatest? Yeah, I do. You got to be a servant to all. Uh, okay. You see, almost everything Jesus says is so counterintuitive because he's the only right side up person who's ever lived in our upside down world. And so he comes in from a totally foreign culture and we look at him and say, who is this man? He's like an alien to us. And the answer is we are aliens. 
We're disconnected from the Lord. We don't fit in. And of course, if you come to Jesus, if you commit your life to him, if you trust in him, you would naturally think that he's going to expect you to do some things that are 180 degrees from what you think is right. Jesus, it hasn't come to tweak your thinking or tweak my thinking. Gosh, Paul's getting it mostly right. Way to go. Let me just come in there and just tweak what he's thinking. No, Paul's going 180 degrees in the wrong direction, and he must repent. He must turn around and go in a different direction. So we're, we're aliens. We're not only aliens, we're hostile in our minds. Romans 8, the great chapter The mind set on the flesh, the mind set on itself is death. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. Those who are set on the flesh cannot please God. When we're disconnected from God, we're disconnected from Christ, we have this hostility in our mind. And there's no way we can please God. And it's very important to grasp the extent of what Paul's saying here, because he's saying apart from Christ, your mind does have an object of worship. Every human being will worship. We are designed to worship like every human being must breathe. It's part of the, our DNA. We will worship something. But the mind set on the flesh does have an object of worship, and that object is you. You orbit around you. You're the center of your universe. And it's expressed maybe in at least these two fundamental ways. First, it's expressed by you're primarily concerned about yourself. See, whether you deal with pride or whether you deal with terribly low self-esteem, you have fundamentally the same problem. You think about yourself all the time. I'm so prideful and I'm looking down at everybody because I feel like I'm better than everybody. Or I've got so low, so, so much low self-esteem that when I look at myself and I compare myself to everybody else, I'm just nobody. But you're always focused on yourself. You've or, you put yourself in the center of your own orbit or you wrongly believe that you can be good enough to please God. The Bible is very clear. If you're alienated from Jesus, if your mind is set on yourself, you cannot please God. So in Romans 8, Paul sort of locks the door on any way of self-salvation. There's no way you can please God on your own. It's just impossible. So that's why when uh, uh, Jesus comes, John the Baptist comes, Paul comes, Peter comes, and they preach... They all use this same one word, repent. Repent means you've got to turn around. You've got, you're going in one way, you've got to turn in a different direction. And when you and I come and we, we, we repent, we have to repent of both of those things. We have to repent of our evil deeds. Yes, God, I had a mind that was set on myself. I orbited around myself and therefore I grasped and hold on to things that were unhealthy for me. I'm repenting. I'm turning around from those things and I'm moving towards you. And I also have to repent of my good deeds. I have to repent of thinking, hey, but you know, those things were good and you owe me one, God. 
See, when you come to Christ, you have to repent of all of your good deeds and all of your evil deeds because none of those things get you to Christ, get to God. Only one person gets you to God, and that's Christ. So I'm letting go of both good and evil, and I'm holding on to this one person. He's the center of the universe. There's, we must turn away from self-centeredness and self-salvation. And finally, this third diagnosis, we're doing evil deeds. It's really a simple equation. You see it all the way through the Bible. You have alienation from God. You have hostility in your mind. So alienation plus hostility equals bad behavior. I'm disconnected. I'm hostile in my mind. And you can just bet what my behavior is going to be. It's going to be bad. It's going to be a, I'm just going to have this bad behavior. And when we read Romans chapter one, you could see this downward spiral. Verse 21, they or humans, they knew God, but they didn't honor God as God. I became an alien. I know God exists, but I'd rather center myself around myself. So I became alienated. Verse 21 and 22, then they became futile or useless in their thinking. They, they thought, oh, I'm really smart. And God's saying, but you're a fool. So we become alienated. We become hostile to God in our minds. And then in this reoccurring, very sad phrase, verse 24, 26, 28, Romans chapter 1, God gave them up. He says, I'm going to I'm going to let you understand what it feels like to have me step away and you center all of humanity center itself around yourself. And, of course, just reading the text is very difficult. We follow our passions and you see just humanity fragments. And you, you see the list here. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty. It's just a terrible list of who we are apart from Christ. And sort of the, the, the very end, the worst part about it is not only are we those things, doing those things, we look at other people and say, it's okay, it's natural. We approve, we affirm things that God never intended. Paul delivers a sobering diagnosis. We don't have a damaged heart. We don't have a diseased heart. We have a fully functioning heart that's pumping poison out into our minds and our body. It's at full strength. In the wrong direction. See, see, when you meet Christ, when you understand who you are, you understand, I don't need a stint. I, I, I don't need a bypass. Yeah, this one thing's killing me. If I could just bypass. No, you don't need that. You need a heart transplant. You've got to take the whole old heart out a heart of stone and replace it with what God calls a heart of flesh. That's the diagnosis diagnosis and the diagnosis of the human condition apart from Christ, I think is what makes Christianity so difficult, so offensive, so threatening. Nobody wants to hear that about themselves.
But Paul, you know, Paul, the apostle, there's no buts. See, I hope you see that if you don't get an accurate diagnosis, you're going to spend your entire life circling the self-help aisle at Barnes and Noble. You're just going to cruise through the aisle and say, I've got this current pressing problem and I'm grabbing this self-help section and I'm trying to figure it out. And of course, it's not going to quite fit. So you've got to circle the aisle your whole life trying to find that solution. And, and you're, you don't really understand that you don't need self-help. You and I, we need a savior. We need somebody from outside to come and rescue us. We cannot help ourselves. Unless somebody helps us. And perhaps this is the first time you've heard or understood the diagnosis. And today, today would be a good day to repent. Maybe you just know, I know these evil deeds, they're, 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 they feel life-giving, but really they're killing me. And I've got to repent, I've got to turn away from that. Or maybe today's the first day you've heard, I've got to turn away from my good deeds I've got to let go of those like God's going to owe me for doing these good things when I meet him face to face. You've got to let go of that. That's poison. If you're not a follower of Christ, this is the Bible's diagnosis of the human condition. And my question for you is, what is your self-diagnosis? What do you think is wrong with humanity? What do you think the answer is? Well, what, who is Jesus? What, who are we? What did he do? He has now. These are some of the sweetest words in the whole Bible. And they gain sweetness when you really understand yourself. If you don't understand yourself, you just kind of read through them. But if you really understand the diagnosis, you really see yourself as God sees you, he has now, or in the NIV, but... Now he has. Something has happened from outside. This is called the gospel. This is the good news. Why we were alienated. Why we were hostile in our mind. Why we were doing evil deeds. God saw that and he came for us while that was happening. He wasn't waiting for us to, to, to shape up. He understood we couldn't possibly shape up. So while we were doing these things... Romans 5, 8. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. While Paul Phillips was still powerless, Christ died for Paul Phillips, an ungodly person. That's good news. That's the gospel. That he's moved on our behalf before we made any step towards him. And this verse is like, a, 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 like I just thought of it about this verse in, in verse 21 here. It's like a, a buffet of desserts. And it's all the best desserts. And your plate's this big. You've got a platter. And you're just walking through this verse. Oh, let me put a big helping of that on my plate. Let me put a big helping of that on my plate. It's all great. And we could, we could spend weeks just thinking about these words. We're, we're reconciled. We're, we've been changed from one position to another. We, there's been all hostility has been removed. We've been moved from the enemy's camp to the friend's camp. A great exchange has taken place on our behalf. A basic understanding, a fundamental of Christianity is that a, a right 
and holy, angry God is hurtling towards humanity. We have rejected him as the creator and we have monstrously damaged the creation. First, we've damaged ourselves. We've injured ourselves. We've injured other people. We've injured the environment. And God is coming with wrath towards those people. And I know when you hear that, there are some people who just, when they hear about God and they hear about his wrath, somehow those two things can't seem to fit together. And they just, they just get hostile to that, that idea. And I'm sympathetic to that understanding. But if you struggle with that image of the wrath of God, I would want you to consider if you were the parents today of Peter Kasig. Peter Kasig was the army ranger, the aid worker to Syria who recently was beheaded. And someone from the Pentagon called you and said, if you want, you can see this video. The video that the president himself called pure evil. If you can taste a kind of anger like that, that a monstrous injustice has happened, that that something or someone somehow needs to answer for that, needs to to come to terms with that. Something must be done so this doesn't go on. If you can just get a, a feeling of that, that's a hairline fracture compared to us and our creator. So, yes, God understandably has a wrath It's hurtling towards humanity at a frightening speed. And then what Paul vividly describes is almost beyond belief. God, the fullness of God in Jesus Christ, stood in front of the wrath and absorbed it all for me. Look at the description, verse 20. Making peace by his blood on the cross. Verse 21, in his body of flesh by his death. See, Jesus exchanges places with us. This is a huge difference between Christianity and Islam. Islam believes that Jesus lived, but that he didn't actually die on the cross, that the bodies got switched somehow. And so if you talk to a Muslim, they don't think Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. And so it's up to them. It's up to them to atone for their own sins. That's a tough place to be. Christianity in 2 Corinthians says this, God reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. God, God doesn't forget your sins. He counts all of your sins, every one of them, against Christ. Then Paul chooses these words to describe us now. Holy. This is incredible. Okay, Paul Phillips, you're holy now. (laughs) You're not set apart from God. You're set apart to God. You're blameless. You don't have a spot. Paul, we're looking for a spot. Don't see any spots. And then I love this word. You're above reproach. 
You're, you're free from accusation. I mean, just try to imagine one and one day this will happen. You're going to stand just you before God and he's going to call out. It does anyone have an accusation against Paul Phillips? Oh, how many people could say, yes, I do. Paul Phillips has accusations against Paul Phillips. I can condemn myself. I've got Satan wanting to condemn me. I've got other people who could say, yes. But when he says that, because I stand with Christ, when he cries out, does anyone have an accusation? Here's the most beautiful sound I'll ever hear. Silence. No one has even one accusation. Why? Because every sin that Paul Phillips committed was counted against Christ. So God the Father says, Paul, I'm looking. See no spots. Come in. That's as clear as I can make the gospel. So what do I do now? Verse 23 if oh, this is a blockbuster word here, if sure makes it sound like my salvation is conditioned on my behavior. If indeed you continue in the faith, verse 23, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. We could talk a lot about this, but I think the way Paul is using the word is to say, if you continue in your faith, continuing in your faith is not a condition of salvation, but a confirmation of salvation. Continuing in your faith is not a condition of salvation, but a confirmation of salvation. Let me give you a couple of other verses. Hebrews three fourteen. We have come to share in Christ if we hold Firmly till the end. Peter says, be eager to make your calling. You be eager to make your calling and election sure by doing these things. I think what Paul's trying to fight against here is this culture was a culture full of magic. Full of sayings, full of spells. And he's trying to separate Christianity out from that saying, it's not a magic prayer. It's not like you just walk down the aisle, you said the magic prayer, and you're in. That's not how Christianity works. Sam Storm says this, The notion believed by some that one act of faith in a prayer to Jesus eternally secures salvation, irrespective of how you live your lives, is unbiblical. One, some notion believed by some that just this one act of faith Eternally secures their salvation, irrespective of how you live your lives, is unbiblical. The failure to persevere is proof that one's profession of faith was an act of self-delusion. I wonder how many are walking around self-deluded. I talked to a man briefly right before he died. I only knew him for a few months. And he had no visible signs so far as I could tell from his history of, of wanting any, to do anything with Christ. He seemed hostile to Christ. 
And I had to do his funeral. So I said some things that I thought were true in general, but I had no idea about this guy. All I could say is what I knew was he was hostile to Christ. Some months later, somebody in his family said, hey, Pastor Paul, I found something that from his house that said when he went to vacation Bible school, he wrote his name down on the little prayer that I committed my life to Christ. So I feel secure that he's in heaven. Look, I don't know. I'm not the judge. I don't get to be the judge. I'm glad I'm not the judge. But that didn't make me feel secure. See, if you're holding fast, if you're continuing in your faith, it's proof that you're not self-deluded, that you really have genuinely held on to the gospel. James says it this way, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Hearers only are just deceiving themselves. James 1, 22. Let me conclude with this. Paul encourages this congregation to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting. The, the imagery is, uh, it's helpful to know that Colossae was a, in a geographic region known for earthquakes. Paul knows that, so he's saying, hey, you know, when it shifts around you, you got to make sure you're not standing on that ground. You're standing on something more solid. These are well-chosen words. Paul knows that counterfeit gospels, personal trials are going to come in, and he doesn't want these personal trials or spiritual uh, difficulties to create an earthquake and shake them off from the gospel. I was reading this week about buildings that are built primarily in California, but other places that are in earthquake zones and what they do to sort of earthquake-proof a building. And there's lots of things they do to the structure, but one of the things they do sort of around the base of the structure, they put in what's called a, a dampening, dampening system or a damping system. And there's structures and they're different structures, but they sort of surround this building so that when the, the earth shakes, they act like shock absorbers. The building's still going to feel some of the shock of the earthquake, but it's been absorbed in this shock absorber that's surrounding this building. It takes some of the pain so that the building can still stand. And I thought, okay, Paul's telling this church, he's, he's trying to say, hey, earthquakes are going to come. And I want to make sure you have the, the dampers around you so that when they do come, you're not just standing there all on your own. You've got something or someone that's absorbing some of this pain. Some of these questions like, why, God? And I thought, well, what, what, are, what are those dampeners? First, the truth of the gospel. I think that's why his prayer is in the beginning of the, of the book is, I want you to hold on to this wisdom. Because right when it's all shaking, you want to make sure I've got the truth. But the second thing, I think, is what Paul himself is doing. He's standing there next to this church, taking some of the shock. And that's why you need a church. 
Because earthquakes are going to hit your life, spiritual, physical, financial, relational, whatever it is. And you're not going to be able to stand up if you don't have somebody to help you stand. And it needs to be somebody who knows the truth and just keeps telling you the truth over and over again while the earth around you shakes. And when it's all done, you're still standing. 